Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and today is episode 39. And today we're going to be talking about what does it mean to minister and engage those living with disabilities. Let's do this! Hello, hello, hello. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on this conversation. We've been excited to have this conversation for a long time with this very special guest, Cynthia Tam. What's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing okay, John. Thank you. Yes, this has been a long time in the making. Yeah, it's a privilege to be here, though. I'm excited. You know, this is also a special treat because you are also Bernard's mom and Bernard is here as well. Bernard, what's going on? Good. Yeah, we're so honored to have you on our podcast, and we've been really excited to have this conversation with you because I feel like it is a conversation that's not always talked about. So would you be able to share with us a little bit about your journey and what has specifically led you to be working alongside those with disabilities and working alongside churches to serve those with disabilities? It's a long journey. Yes. We have time. We got time. I have been, well, I really should say I was because I'm no longer an occupational therapist, but I, I work as an occupational therapist for, for many, many years. And so disability really is part of my life. Mm-hmm. And the reasons of the change is another long story that I probably will say for another time. <laughs> but basically, I was called into the seminary. Very clearly, God called me, and I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And so I went into Tyndale and kept searching for that answer. Why am I here? Why would I need to do seminary training when I'm working full-time? And so I was given this idea that I need to combine my professional training with my ministry training. Sure. But how did that look like? I had no idea. So I went and talked to my pastor, and so he said, why don't you start a support group for parents with children with special needs? Okay. And that's how it all got started. And uh, yeah, believe it or not, it was in 2006. Okay, so it's been 13 years. Yeah, it was right. uh, quite a long time ago. And the first meeting of that parent support group was totally my turning point. Right. Yeah, so we had... Seven families, except for one. All the other families were Christian families, but not from the church that I belong to. Right. So they were all invited by friends to come. And uh, that probably already tells you something, because you don't really usually find families with disability in the church. Mm. So... That first meeting, the two hours, was just intro. And there was lots of tears, and it broke my heart the most when I heard people who were Christians who could not find a church family to accept their children for over 10 years. Okay. And that just took me into the ministry, knowing you know, you know what, something needs to change. The church really needs to learn to accept families, even just of our own. We're not really talking about disabilities out there. 
Mm-hmm. We're talking about Christian families who cannot find acceptance in Christian churches. Right. Yeah. So that's how it all got started. Wow. Oh, how many of those families are still kind of connected to that group, or have been able to find a church that they feel they sense that they are welcomed and loved? One families I have lost touch. They have not stayed in the church that I I was with, but the rest of the family stayed, and they're still there, I think. And they, that non-believing family, after they got baptized at wow. the church, mm-hmm. yeah. So they, they that support group have continued to to grow and accept new families. And did those families all know each other before that first meeting? No, that was the first time. Oh, yeah, that, that's also another very touching, interesting point. Mm. Families who have similar experience in raising a child with disability, you almost don't need warm-up. When they see each other, Sure, they just pour their hearts out because they know these others that they are pouring their hearts to understand. Mm. And, and it's in sharing that experience that they find support. Right. So, yeah, as I said, the first meeting that I had with them, with the seven families, it's just intro. It's just like who I am. Sure. Who's my child? What happened? And that took two hours. Right. And I'm just thinking about you sharing about that conversation and how revealing it was that they felt that they weren't able to kind of find that community or connection with their church and that you know this was a time to just share some of their experiences right mm-hmm. yeah so for you what did it spur you onto? what did it lead you towards it led me to think about how the church really should be the family for them with them mm-hmm. well i mentioned that at that point i was at tindale right so what that affirmed in my heart was that i that's what God wants me to do, sure. to leave my job and go into ministry. And yet I didn't know what that ministry looked like. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, didn't feel that I was called to be a pastor at that point. And so I thought that I was made to be, you know, going into a Christian organization and start something supporting the family. Right. But there's too many stories, but I'll tell you one. <laughs> yes, please uh, do. So as I was getting closer to finishing my Tyndale training and had affirmation in my heart that God wanted to call me into ministry, at that time we, we had uh, a Bible study group at work. Mm-hmm. So I shared that at that Bible study group. And then right after that, a colleague, but also a brother in Christ, and just came to me and say, you know what, Cynthia, you're... You think you're called to ministry and you don't know what you want to do. And there's a dream that I always had. So he grew up in a campsite, running camp ministry. He had, because his sister passed away, uh, this sister with disability. And he always wanted to organize a disability camp. And so he said, you know, if you're into ministry, why, shouldn't we, why don't we try that? offer care ministry as, as one way to support the family. So that's like one thing lead, leading into the another. And um, that's how we started the camp. 
Sure. Which is still running. This is the 12th chem. Wow. The 12th 12 year. Years the 12th are... year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. That flies. 2017 is when we celebrated our 10th anniversary. That's right. right. Wow. So, yeah. So, going back in the timeline, so this had all started while you were at Tyndale. Is that correct? You correct. were still studying at Tyndale. Correct. Which, by the way, I believe that you and Bernard still hold the distinction for a mother and son graduating at the same time. Is that correct? I don't know if it's a Distinction. Distinction. I mean, celebrated. They talked about. let us. Legendary. They didn't let us graduate together. <laughs> we actually had Susan too, right? So. Oh, that's three of you guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They said no. So. It was fun. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean no? We asked if they could hood us all together. Oh, no. actually walk across the stage together. Yeah. Oh, hand in hand. This is no hate on Tyndale. I'm just no, say, stating no. the facts. That's all. The three of us are Tyndale graduates and we, we love Tyndale. Yeah, there right? are many of us who are Tyndale grads. Yeah. <laughs> but also that, that you guys had an opportunity to be pastoring together. Right. Yeah. And, or a short and classmates too. And classmates too. Yes. The connections run deep. Connections <laughs> run deep. But going back to, you know, you're sharing about your experiences with the camp. How did that spark the ministry that you are currently a part of? Oh, we're here all day, right? We got time. According to my recorder, we have 12 hours and 49 minutes. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. The camp started when I was still at Tyndale. When I was willing to surrender and quit my job and going into ministry, I was about a year before, a year and a bit before okay. I actually completed my Tyndale course. And yeah, so that was, we, we ran two camps because when I first came out, we didn't register as a charity, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, so I finished and then we came out, we registered as a corporation first. Sure. We need to do that. And then applied for the charity status. So by then we, we had at least two camps running. Sure. What does that mean? To be able to register and apply for charity status? Well, that we, we could actually raise funds and accept donation, oh, issue, okay. donation right. receipt. You need to broader. exist as an organization before you can have a charitable That's number. That's right. Right, so, right. Okay. That's right. That's right. We did the incorporation first. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So what, what happened is it, it became an organization. It's now called Belichirogia. Or villagerogia, if you want to use the uh, the Greek terms, which is a Greek term for blessing. So, so our intent, our desire is hopefully that God will use us to bless the families. Sure. So on top of running camp, we like to see that we can serve them outside of camp. You know, the the year the year round things. So yeah, so that was the first step, and it's been growing since. Yeah, for sure, for sure. The camp, the concept of the camp uh, that my my colleague and, and brother wanted to see is family camp. Okay. So, you know, at church or churches, we, we probably, many of us have church family camp that our whole family would attend. But for the families with children with disabilities, as I said, they're not often welcome, right? They many of them have never experienced a family mm. retreat, mm. and so right from the beginning, we we did it for the whole family, meaning the parents, the child with disabilities, 
and then their siblings. And so we concurrently will run the parents' program, the special needs program, and the siblings' program, Mm -hmm. recognizing that siblings also really need support. And then we build into it your general family retreat thing, worship. We have a Bible theme, and we, we have Bible stories and all that that we all know about Christian retreat. And then it's a real camp because it's outdoor, and we have the outdoor activities that foster the sense of the community. So sure. we are very thankful that we, we have the campsite, which is a Christian campsite that has the facilities of canoeing, rock wall, mini golf, Lots of things. Right. Yeah, so the family can actually have entertainment, community time, and time of, of studying, worshiping as well. Sure. And let me just, at this point, since I've talked about worship, apparently many children with disability never experience worship. And later on, do uh, a PhD study, and one of the participants was actually coming from camp. And the mom said why she was thinking about bringing her daughter back to the church was actually from the camp, mm-hmm. knowing that she, she has autism, knowing that she could actually would tolerate the music and then be able to actually enjoy it, participate in it, dance in it. Sure. It all came from that exposure. Okay. So that was very, very precious to us. That's amazing. So Bernard, you were saying that you have... <laughs> had some experience being up at the camp before. So what was your experience of being at the camp and also being a speaker? Yeah, I just remember how honest and raw the time together was. Mm. Really moved by the space that we had together. I I think people really came in uh, with an open heart for one another, that there was like really genuine love. And, you know, we've seen people who weren't sure what it was going to be like. A lot of volunteers are like, I'm not sure like what I'm doing here. I, I don't know like why I'm here. Yeah. And walk away saying, this is the most incredible experience I've ever had. And just like that kind of transformation was very powerful. I just remember the, there was one exercise that we did at the conclusion of that camp. I think I was talking about freedom or something to do with that. And having like everybody gather together, all the kids and all the families and all the volunteers, and we were holding balloons. I don't know if you remember. Yep. And that became like, and we just kind of all released the balloon mm. as an act of like freedom. That's I cool. Think. Prayers. Prayers. Oh yeah, lifting up prayers. And it was just like that was one of those memories that I had, um, just being able to see able in different ways, but we're all worshiping God together. Sure. And I think that was the, the beauty. Of camp. Sure. But I touch a very important point, actually, that's mm-hmm. really well documented in the literature. The transforming powers of being with people with disability. Right. John Vanier, as you probably know, the founders of Large International, yeah. who recently passed away in, in his many books and in, his, in a lot of the studies on this phenomenon of large. People use this word, transformation. And it's, it's actually quite incredible how God will use people with disabilities to open the hearts of people. Absolutely. It actually yeah. make us realize we are all vulnerable people. And then we, when, we, when we are willing to be open and vulnerable, like what Bern said, it, it 
bring us into the heart of God, and that's where we see changes. Yeah, and and that's very true. You you know my friend Cindy, she was actually the second year volunteer. Nice. And you you've seen her now, and you know how she was transformed, and it's actually there that she felt uh, affirmed by God to go into special needs. Yeah, and she's not the the only one over the history of the camps when people are touched by God at the camp mm-hmm. who, to go into different um, professionals, nursing, teaching, social work. Yeah, it was very incredible. A short time, we always said, when you are joined hip to hip, that's what they basically do as volunteers, is to support uh, a person with special needs all day on, like mm-hmm. join hip to hip. Sure. You change forever. Yeah, sure. I'm glad that both of you brought out the transformative power of being with others and uh, also learning from those who are living with disabilities. I remember an experience, even for myself, being at Larch Daybreak Mm. up in Richmond Hill, attending one of their services, being ministered to by those who were leading it. And it really stretched me. And also at the same time, just reaffirming that, yeah, God is at work in this person. This person reflects the image of God, and I'm learning from them at this moment, and I feel ministered by them mm-hmm. at, at this moment. It was something that was very transformative for me mm-hmm. in, in being able to experience that. Henry Nowen speaks a lot on that because yep. that was the transformative moment for him. Yes. You know, being a professor of like Princeton and Yale and Oxford and like being the super smart priest. Yeah, well-educated who- and such. Yeah, I felt God pulling him into such a space. I remember reading it and how he says, nobody here cares that I hold multiple PhDs. Nobody cares that I'm really smart. It doesn't (laughs) matter here. It's like an equalizer. Right. Yeah. And I think like out of that, like brought so much humility, but like the introspection and the understanding of humanity and like like God's creation becomes so, so more real and tangible as opposed to being this kind of theological philosophical concept mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's it's true two fundamental questions that often come from talking about disability in theological terms mm-hmm. one is humanity what does it mean to be human when you brought humanity quote unquote in the lowest denominator so as if you think about people who are very profoundly disabled or the the world thing things is in a vegetable state. Mm-hmm. Those who lost their cognitive power or become less and less able uh, physically and cognitively, would they lose their humanity? What wow. does it mean to be human? That's a huge question. Yeah, that, that is what theological questions uh, often brought up by disability. Sure. And then the next one is whose we are. Yes. Right? So we talk about the, the rejections of families and people with disability feel. So there's a sense that they don't belong to this world. Mm-hmm. And so it, the, the, there's questions of, if they don't belong here, who do they belong to? Mm. You know. And so those are two really big questions that a lot of people wrestle with when they are coming across the, the questions of disability. Sure. Are there any 
theologians, writers, authors, thinkers that have shaped and informed the way that you have studied and the way that you've understand it, and even like have challenged the way that you you've wrestled with a theology of ability or disability? My supervisor, John Swindon, mm-hmm. is uh, a pioneer in disability theology. There's um, no doubt about that. So his writing definitely influenced me even before I uh, sought him out as my supervisor. Sure. So he's, he's worked with people who have mostly mental health issues. He was a psychiatric nurse in terms of professional background and, and went into ministry and academics. So he did a lot of work looking at cognitive abilities and the concept of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in our world, faith requires cognition. We need to be able to remember Bibles. We need to be able to understand the Bible messages and say the real prayer before we can be considered to have faith. When you cannot have any of those abilities, can you have faith? Mm. So he wrestled with that a lot. And then uh, his, his award-winning book is on dementia. And so that question that I, I just brought up, if, if you're older and have this label as dementia, do you lose your humanity? Do you cease to be a human um, so he wrestled also a lot with his questions of humanity. Mm-hmm. So he obviously was a big influence for me theologically and studying under him yeah, too, right? So sure. obviously he's a big influence. Uh, Miroslav Wolf was a, a, a theologian earlier in time that was still, I guess, influenced me in the concept of exclusion. You know, his book, Exclusion and Embrace, was the first book I read of his. And talk about what exclusion means. If he, he said, you are excluded, even though you're in the same space, if people are excluding you from relationship, you're excluded. Hmm. And that just not, you know, he, he comes from uh, the, the, his writing is about refugees. And about racial tension. Sure. So you, you know that you, that you can see how uh, racial exclusion means you don't want to be in relationship with other people of other racial background. But that applies to disability, right? So, so that another terms that Professor Swinton been really well known for is we have to move from inclusion to belonging. Mm. And so to be included, you only need to be in the same room, same, same building. But you could be in the building and don't belong because nobody wants that relationship with you. Right. Which is what I talked about at the beginning, right? People can come into the church and nobody wants them. Nobody wants to relate with them, right. interact with them. They, they don't belong. They feel relationally excluded even exactly. though they are welcomed into the space. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of like like the outer court of the the court of the Gentiles, and then yeah, the temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the early yeah. temple period. Yeah, yeah. So there's ideas of of people with disability being marginalized within the church. Sure, it's it's big. Physically present, but relationally distant. Which is kind of interesting because then we when we talk about like marginalization of people, like it's then it's just not just the people with disability too. There's like all the people that are living in the margins are 
experiencing something very similar, right? Like we often talk right. about, you know, they always often joke about like, I mean, it's no joke, but they say like, what, what if somebody that was homeless that came into our church, like, will they find a place where they can sit yeah. and will they yeah. find a place where they will welcome and embrace? Right. And- right. You know what? Not only that, we, we are from Tyndale, so we probably all know Dr. Mark Chapman. So he was involved in a study with lettered or sponsored by World Vision to look at uh, integration of immigrants in the churches of Canada. Right. You know, amazingly, their qualitative study, a lot of their findings almost in verbatim to the findings of, of my study. Wow, okay. Yes. So that talks a lot about marginalization of racial differences. Sure. And that, that's know. probably a Canadian study too. Canadian right? study, absolutely. So they, they talk about uh, these immigrants can come into quote-unquote mainstream churches. Hmm. People welcome them and they, they can probably give them a lot of stuff like clothing, food, and, and so on. But they are second-class citizens in the church. Hmm. Nobody wants to actually go that further step and be their friends. Sure. Yeah. It, it's actually astonishing when I read that and compared to my own notes. I, I actually told Mark myself that, you know, that's what I found. Wow. Amazing to see some of these parallels, for sure. So I, w- I do want to follow up with a question, which is, what does engagement look like then? You know, we're talking about in the context of the church and about welcoming someone in and coming alongside someone and being able to relate to them. and so. My question is, what does that actually look like? Because I think, you know, for those who have not had an opportunity to have had those experiences before, they might feel a little lost about what does it mean to connect with someone. And even though that you may have the similar elements of like, oh yeah, we have worship, we have prayer together, it's, it's still not a given that everyone would just engage in the same way. And how do we engage with someone who is living with disabilities? And so the question that I'm kind of following up with is, then what does it look like? If, if, we've, if we've noticed these things, if we've had these deep questions, these deep theological questions, then what is that next step for a church? Do you want to read 350 pages? <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to when, you're, you, when you finish your thesis and it's all done. I, I want to skim through it. Hey, I, I'd be totally up for it. That was exactly my question. Yeah. What does belonging look like for them? Yeah. I picked up on the metaphor of, uh, well, two metaphors, actually. Uh, the family of God, mm-hmm. or the household of God, was actually written down, and the body of Christ. Sure. And it, it came from the observation. I actually did my study with two church communities. Mm-hmm. I was there observing for one year each, and I noticed that they, they used these terms which we probably all use very commonly. We call each other brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean? Do we actually relate with each other as brothers and sisters? Well, what, one thing that's quite common in uh, the literature, as I said, is because the Christian families who left or feel rejected by the church and left the church. Right. Right? So a question, if we are brothers and sisters to each other, if one person or one family left, why is it they're not missed? Mm. It's actually brought a much deeper questions as you have identified. I think 
we need to think a lot more as a church how we are actually relating with each other. Mm. Are we Sunday acquaintances? Sure. Is our relationship social? Or is our relationship truly as brothers and sisters? I mean, these days, you know, you know, days in, in this world, um, brothers and sisters don't usually, uh, don't necessarily, I should say, get along. Right. But in the biblical sense, brothers and sisters have a very intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. And we, you're born into the family is to actually receive a brother or a sister is a gift. Mm-hmm. But it's also a given. You don't get to choose your brother or sisters, right? right. <laughs> so if, if you can apply that metaphor to a person with disability being brought by God to the church, you have a very different connotation. Sure. It's a different posture. It's very different. If you can, you, you know that you cannot reject your brother or sister. Mm-hmm. We're called to love our brother and sisters. That changed the dynamic, I think, um, if, if we can start looking at the church more deeply in our relationship with each other. Until we can change that relationship, we can talk what we can. People use many different programs mm-hmm. to welcome people with disabilities. Um, but you can find oftentimes they're segregated programs. Mm. They are uh, whatever program you call them. A respite, or they are a special needs program, friendship ministry. They are there, but they don't mix with the congregation. Mm. And if we have people with disabilities, oh, my study was with profound autism, and that's a group of people who may do a lot of self talk, or we may make some noises. And in our Sunday worship model, that's often performance based. People can tolerate that. Right. They view it as disruptive. Right. So it, it means that we probably have to revisit our, the way that we worship. What do we mean by worshiping God? If we're actually kicking out our brother and sister, is that a worshipful, worshipful act? Mm. So it actually would lead to a lot more questions. Yeah. Yeah. And probably it's just, it's not like better programs. Um, <laughs> right. Because it's probably an ethos thing that needs to be addressed. It's something deeper rooted. You almost have read my thesis without reading it. I, that's the exact word I well, use, like, ethos. I've, it's I've, almost like I've you guys also, were related. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to continue to follow up on that because you talk about building relationships with someone. How does, how does someone feel like they are in a relationship? And I totally agree with you. I think where I will push it is a little bit like where, you know, we need to be attentive and sensitive to where each person is, regardless of whether they have disabilities or not, right? right? So the way I will relate with one person is in a certain way, and a way I will relate with another person is a different way. But hopefully in both cases, both people will feel that they belong and that we have a, a relationship and that we're growing. And so what does that mean then to build a relationship with those who are living with disabilities or families? with children with disabilities, because there's like a nuance about that, right? I'm going to push back. Okay. No, please do. And say that, yes, we 
adapt our way of relating with people depending on the person's unique characteristics. That being the case, then it's the same with each different pe- persons with disability. Even though I, my study was with people with profound autism, autism, as we know, is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So even a person that you know has a label of autism, the way that they interact different. Mm-hmm. So how you interact with them, you have to get to know the person specifically and relate in that very specific way. So that's why I would do a pushback. And then also, the trouble that we often have when we talk about label with autism is generally regarded that, that they do not like to have relationships which is fundamentally untrue. Mm. But the labels that we use and the stigma related to it just block our vision of the real person. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to know the person, we regard the person as that label. And, and that's where we stopped or, or how we think we should relate. Like there are some people in our church who ask me that question. I have this friend or I have this person who lives in our building who has autism. And I hear that they don't like to be talking to, so I don't talk to them. Is that right? Obviously no, right? I would say continually engagement. Yeah, right. Continual engagement. Yeah, but I want to clarify. I would want to say that, you know, for some, building a relationship with someone is like, you know, you be able to engage with them and that they would be getting some sort of response and you continue to build like that. But for those who are living with disabilities, that type of back and forth, that type of response to one another is different. And yeah. so what are some of the things that we do need to be aware of in regards into how to build relationships? Yeah. Okay, that's a fair question. Yeah. But let me use another comparison. So if you are to babysit a person, Mm -hmm. your friend's kids, what do you do? You ask the parents Mm. specific things about the kid, right? Sure. Same thing. Each individual person, especially if they have certain disability, that there's certain things that we need to be aware of, the families would know. And so it would be, to me, it's the same thing. You will ask the families how you would... What's the best way to communicate? Yes. How, yes. how do I understand the person's communication? What kind of thing might upset the person, might trigger an allergy reflex, and so on and so forth. Good, yeah. yeah. You know, and I think the other way too is probably understanding what relating means. Sure. It may not necessarily be what we think, like even in a formal verbal dialogue as we are having right now, but other forms of communication, other cues, other ways of relating with one another. It reminds me of like when I was growing up in my school, one of our peers uh, has CP, mm-hmm. cerebral palsy, and she was nonverbal and she was in a wheelchair. And part of like as a class is we would always take turns walking her around mm-hmm. during recess and having lunch with her. In the beginning, it was just like, I don't know how to relate. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how to engage. But as you spend time, as you as you learn, as you get to know her, you're beginning to enter into a different way of relations. Sure. You understand what will make her laugh. 
Mm-hmm. You understand what will bring her joy, even like a butterfly that flies by. I think that initial step seems so daunting and fearful, but it, it takes just like any other relationship. It takes a lot of presence mm-hmm. and just like an an openness to enter into a sense of relationship. Sure. Yeah. Misled the volunteers that came. Many of them never actually have met a person with disabilities, and. With the nature of our our camp, it's a lot of people with uh, other disabilities, uh, especially physical. They they have lots of camps options. So who end up coming to our camp is generally people, a lot of them with autism and with pretty significant uh, involvements. And so not many people know how to interact with them. Mm-hmm. How do you actually spend four days with them? And being there constantly with them, mm-hmm. it's when you actually need to make that step to to and to to try and engage. You have to because you you bond with that person. Sure. And then you learn you learn the person when you actually step across that boundary. Sure. You know this is a huge topic, and I think this is a lot of implications for the church. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, you know, as you've been in this ministry for so long, what does it mean to be able to equip? A church, or to be walking alongside a church, to help them to understand this, to dispel ignorance, or to be able to ask those tougher questions. What have your experiences been like to be walking alongside churches? What I have been doing with churches these days, I usually start with the questions of what is disability, mm. and I felt that when we understand. Disability is such a vague term that could describe everybody or nobody. Sure, yeah. You know, uh, the fact of life is we would all become disabled one day. And it's it's the time and it is a definition that you, you cannot define. Because who is disabled? You You have people with... Several palsy, you have people with autism, amputation. The word represents such a wide range of human experiences mm-hmm. that it becomes meaningless when you can accept that disability really is a meaningless word. On the other hand, looking at the body of Christ, that Paul said, the body has different members. Diversity is actually what we are created to be. Mm. And we just have to learn to accept differences and love differences. Sure. And that, 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 that first step takes you a long way, I think. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask, because we're Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, I think one of the questions would be, what was your observation working with Asian churches? and non-Asian churches? And are there any similarities, differences, baggages that the Asian culture may find it harder? Yeah. Or have they been more receptive or been more open to engaging in this type of conversation? It's, it's one of the things that we wanted to ask you because you've had the experience. You know, what have those relationships been like? Yeah. And we know that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like, every church is unique. Yeah. And it's just an overgeneralization Kind of. <laughs> based, on, based on your observations. I think there are a lot of similarities just because 
we generally don't know how to be open to accept people with disabilities. It's a very generalized statement. There are a lot of very loving, well-integrated churches that, that they're there. But if, we, if we're looking at majority, I think it's a safe word to say, uh, unfortunately, that we still have a lot more to learn. Okay. There are churches that are more open and they're looking uh, at the ideas of inclusion. And those are churches that you would see that have a lot of program-based activities going on. It, however, doesn't mean that the, the persons with disabilities are integrated. Mm. So I think that's generally the case, whether it's Asian churches or whatever churches that they might be. Asians, though, do have a stronger shame culture. Mm. They tend to hide disability. Right. So when we're talking about churches not welcoming them, there are also families who either not tell you that their child have have any special needs. Right. Or they don't come at all. Right. Because they were yeah. high. And so the, the the strong sense of shame and guilt that's in the Asian culture is is there. One of my research participants is in a mainstream culture church, but Asian background. Okay. And they only recently returned to the church like two years ago. This young person is a teenager now. And before that, he was hidden in the basement, literally described by the mom, because dad felt that it was a shame to bring him outside of the home. Mm. Uh, this is an extreme, but that does illustrate some of the Asian, well, that's particularly a Chinese. Uh, response to disability. What would you suggest to be able to move past that? Cultural change is hard. Yeah, for sure. Cultural change is a, a, a all different question. But this, this particular family that I talked about is a Christian family. And so the desire to be with the Christian community is there. Mm-hmm. For us, we believe that it's a spirit that is stirring in their hearts, then it, it somehow they, they do want to come back. And, but when they do, then it's for us as the church to really open our hearts to them. Hmm. Because in the first place, they're already feeling this shame and guilt and uncertainty, sure. probably deeper than some other cultures. And then when they come out, like some stories that I have heard, Chinese churches that there's a, a young person in a wheelchair in the basement in the children's ministry area so after coming into the door you go down a few steps and you go into the child, children's ministry area so this mom said one time they came in and there's a very kind-hearted grandmother age person approach her and say you shouldn't let your child stay in the wheelchair let her walk. She learned to walk that way. Hmm. <laughs> so well-meaning. I don't, I don't well-meaning. think that's as easy as said as done. <laughs> right? But it's yeah. well-meaning, but hurtful. Yeah, for sure. Extremely hurtful. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the stare, S-T-A-R-E is there. It's huge. That's everywhere. 
And as mom described, as she pushed her, her child past certain people, and some people will look back and stare at her child. Mm. And that's a very hurtful thing. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In that sense, some mainstream churches are a little more subtle. They won't right. stare at you as obviously. Wow, I think this would be a huge conversation to continue on about what does culture change look like and what does it mean to embody a gospel community and culture. Just to wrap up our episode, we normally end it off with a takeaway box. And that is one final thought or question that you would like to leave listeners to think about and to continue to take away from this episode. So Cynthia, we're going to give you the honor to be able to leave this one final thought or question or challenge especially along this topic that we've been talking about. What would you like to say to our listeners? I think I would say the same thing that I've been saying to churches. You know, in, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said we should be the witness for him to the end of the yes. earth. So what does that witness look like? I always go back to Luke 7, where John sent his disciple to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or are we someone else that we should be waiting for? And then. Jesus said, go back to John, tell them what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Mm. So if someone's coming to our churches today, what are the signs that we have for them to point them to Jesus? If Jesus is pointing to a lot of people with disability in this verse, what do we have to show? Whoa, that is definitely something to think about. Oh, man. Take that home. Bam, bam, bam. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining us today on the podcast. It's been an honor to have you here with us. Thank you very much. It's a privilege. Yes, yes. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to us today and joining us on this conversation. It's been a really good one, and there's a lot to think about and to continue to wrestle with, and we hope that you will continue to do that. We'd love to hear how you are responding and how you are continuing to wrestle with these topics, so please reach out to us. You could reach us through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or by email. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to continue to dialogue and continue to grow with one another. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review our episodes and subscribe to the podcast. That helps us get this podcast out there. And please share it with others. You've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.